Hey guys, if you're listening to this, this is part two of our spaceflight episode where I'm going to be talking a little bit about the privatization of spaceflight and kind of what it looks like for the future. This was originally recorded in early April because we're right in the works of getting ready for a really, really big surprise, big special guest. Um, so we hope you guys are all ready for that. In the meantime, enjoy this episode on spaceflight. Let's take off. Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Um, okay, Judd, can you tell me about the Artemis program now? Because after the ISS, there was a shift to how do we get back to the moon? Yeah, so um, we want to get back to the moon now. That's the whole point of the Artemis program. Yeah. There are currently five uh, planned missions, I guess, parts of the, the Artemis program. So this first one, which launched back in November, was in orbit. We were going to make someone go up there and test all the equipment, make sure it works. So they're going to orbit the moon. And the, oh, they did yeah. that and it was successful. Good mission. Nice. Yeah, it was awesome. So they tested all the new um, equipment, including the um, Orion boosters, I think, which is the new rocket and stuff that we were using. So yeah, yeah, so, it was pretty cool. If you want more information on the Artemis program, you can look at our last episode where we talked about a huge facet of the program, which is how do we get on the moon uh, safely and that means we require new spacesuits. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about that. And since last episode, actually, Axiom has revealed the new spacesuits that they're looking at uh, for the Artemis program, which pretty means cool. you know, getting from Mars or, or getting to the moon and getting to Mars and all that stuff. And they look pretty cool. And what did we say last episode? When spacesuits become black, that's Not when things black. are going to get cool. Yeah. And that's what color it was. <laughs> so we that was pretty cool to predict that. Um, but yeah, no, certainly the Artemis program has a lot of moving components and it's just unfolding in front of us right now. Yeah, the cool, one that cool part about it is they're building like essentially like a gate, well, it's called the gateway and it's going to orbit the moon and it's like in a place where you can dock. So it's probably going to be like the shuttle or something taking you out there, mm-hmm. it, like in the future. Maybe it's not right now and things like that. Um, but you'll dock on this, the gateway. And then you'll probably get on some sort of other spacecraft and fly down to the moon, which is, and this gateway is orbiting the moon. And you'll fly down, yeah. you'll do your work or whatever, and then you'll come back up, and then get relaunch. back in the, yeah. the shuttle or whatever you came in, and then go back. We have a little space docking station outside the moon. Yeah. So the idea cool is, idea. you're once you get there, you're able to kind of like refuel if there's extra fuel on board, and yeah. and resupply, like get food and things like and that. Plan. Yeah. yeah. And. And that could stage both for missions on the moon, but also as we go to Mars and things, if you line up the orbits right. So you can have a you can have essentially a bus stop, or yeah, well, you're not sure. like picking anybody up, but you have a a pit stop, a pit stop, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's you know, I haven't really thought about that, but you're right. The idea of lining up the orbits would pose another challenge because if we want to bunny hop our way to other planets, that yep. would be you know, the way to do it. That would be the way to do it exactly. And of course, there's been other programs uh put on by nasa but these are some of the really big ones and of course uh you know if you you might be wondering why we haven't mentioned it already but we'll certainly do an episode in the future on you know the importance of rovers and you know why we've put so much effort into building those uh but that's you know a whole another discussion 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 (laughs) uh on top of that so, like I said, there's been there's five planned out missions for Artemis, um, and number three is when humans will get back on the moon. 
Yeah. So nice. pretty cool. And so that'll be the first time since 1972. I think the next mission, Artemis 2, is going to be 2024. And then yeah. I'm not certain on the Ar- Artemis 3 mission. So but maybe even looking like 2027 or beyond. Probably. But it's like a lot of these are going to get pushed back. But then they'll just never get moved forward. Yeah. You know, you know, they're oh, not going to get moved forward, right. but they'll probably get pushed back. I mean, the thing is, safety is absolutely key. And we have to be able to make sure you only get so many shots with stuff like this, especially when it comes to stuff that we're only going to develop, you know, so many spaceships and we really don't want one to blow up because if you got two spaceships, then you've lost 50% of your spaceships, you know, (laughs) the cheapest option is always the best option. Well, the safest option is the best option, but doing things for as little money as possible is, especially when I was reading about private space enterprise is something that developers are constantly thinking about because if you want to make this uh, commercial, if you want to people to use your product, you need to make sure it's economically viable. That's like step one in capitalism, right? Yep. So AJ, what do you say we take a quick break and then you tell us about that privatized space flight? Yeah, sounds good. Sweet. Alrighty. Okay, Judd, here's the deal. I want to go to space. You do. I do. And so I am 100% backing any private enterprise that wants to wants to help me get that help, help me reach that goal. So, I want to tell you a little bit about what private space enterprise looks like and how that's evolved, you know, really over the last mm, not quite 20 years, but I'm really hoping the development starts to move a little faster than it has in the last 20 years because I've only got so much time here on Earth. I don't really want to be a 90-year-old wrinkly man who finally gets to step on and the Gs kill me as we're accelerating at four times the speed of sound. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. Probably. It's probably <laughs> going to happen? Okay. Yeah. You're going to be strapped in there with me then. Dang it. Um, okay. So one of the really important space flight companies, really the first private space company was uh, Scaled Composites. Um, actually, Scaled Composites is a joint venture between Paul Allen, who co-founded Microsoft, if you don't know who that is. Mostly when we think of Microsoft, we think of Bill Gates, but yeah. um, Paul Allen is another really critical player in the development of Microsoft. He passed away, sadly, in 2018 uh, due to cancer, but when he died, his net worth was $20.3 billion. 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 That's <laughs> crazy. I just can't fathom that amount of money, but it's thank goodness we have people like that who have that much money that can put money towards like philanthropic activities yeah. like spaceflight. Um, but it was a joint venture between Paul Allen and Scaled Composites, uh, which is Bert Rattan's aviation company. If you don't know who Bert is, Bert. He's pretty cool. <laughs> he's essentially if aerospace and industrial engineering had a love child because he's all about making spaceflight light, about making it strong, and about making it energy efficient. And mm. he's actually proved how good he is at doing this stuff, uh, because in 1986, he designed the Voyager. Well, I, you know, he designed it before then, but in 1986, he designed the Voyager and not the satellite that we have in interstellar space. Um, Voyager was able to fly around the world without stopping which is really impressive. No That's fuel. Cool. So talk about energy efficient. And then also he created the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer, 
uh, which is the fastest nonstop, non-refueled circumnavigation, which I think it topped out at 550 kilometers per hour, which so isn't, you know, which isn't commercial air flight speed, but that's really fast when we're talking about trying to make an energy effective uh, vehicle. So you're saying, um, so you're saying that like went around the globe. What was that? What, what was it called again? Say it again. The Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer. Global Flyer. And what was it going? The second, the other one. Yeah. Oh, that was the second one. The first one was Voyager. That was yeah, yeah, not, not the Voyager, the the other one. Yeah, Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer. What what was the purpose of that one? It was the fastest nonstop non-refueled circumnavigation. Nonstop non-refueled, huh? So yeah. it just to fly around the globe once yeah. as fast as possible. And I think it was like they ended up, you know, going further than just one circumnavigation. I think it was like twenty six thousand miles. So was this a? So it was over. It was over two and a half days that this thing was in flight. So two this and was a half an days it was in flight. Yeah, it's an aircraft. Okay. It was not a uh, space vehicle, but yeah, Bert Rattan is an incredibly skilled engineer. Um, so his aviation company, Scale Composites, uh, worked with Paul Allen to create uh, what's known as Spaceship One. Mm. It's impressive. Let's <laughs> let's let's jump right into it. Okay, so it's a Spaceship One is a in 2004 it won an award uh for being the first uh spaceship to be able to take multiple passengers up into space twice or twice in two weeks they give you a boundary because we want reusable you know the goal is we want reusable space flight and so this company scale composites was the first people to be able to do that with spaceship one so here's kind of how it works uh, at the top, the cool part is you get a couple minutes of weightlessness. So, like, that's got to be the coolest experience ever. Yeah. You just get, for like, three or so four minutes. Genius. You get to soak in, like, what it's like to not have energy. But then it comes back. It's not there for, like, the months that you live on the ISS. Yeah, and let me tell you, it's going to come back in, like, a brick. Okay, those Gs <laughs> are going to come back. But uh, we'll get to that. So it goes up about 50,000 feet. It starts out attached to the bottom of an airplane called the White Knight. It's an aircraft. Okay. So it, it pulls the White Knight, pulls Spaceship One up with it to 50,000 feet. And then Spaceship One maneuvers. It drops off of, excuse me, it drops off of White Knight One and then orients itself to approximately vertical and starts just launching straight up. Jeez. Yeah. So the spaceship drops off the underbelly of this aircraft points itself upwards and says, see you later. <laughs> and at twice the speed of sound, it starts accelerating upwards. And so it burns its fuel yeah. for about over, just over a minute. But as you know, Judd, well, let's first talk about why it's launching at 50,000 feet, Judd. Why do you think it's more effective for an aircraft to launch at 50,000 feet than from the ground? I mean, you have less gravity at that height. Yeah. You experience gravity a little bit less than on ground. Yeah, and also... The lack of an atmosphere yeah, less is atmosphere awesome too. because drag and all those components, all those lovely, lovely components uh, that inhibit us to escape the planet um, are much less at 50,000 feet. So if it started any less at like 45,000, there's, it's a much, it's not just a linear difference between like the ground and 50,000 feet. Yeah. 50,000 feet is when you really start to break out of that atmosphere, uh, which makes a big deal. So. The, the fuel starts burning and it coasts up for about a minute after the fuel stops burning because it's got that momentum. Mm-hmm. So it's able to continue uh, going straight up another, I think, like 150,000 feet. 
And so it gonna, it's going to get to the top of this arc, and that's when you're going to experience the weightlessness. And then, unfortunately, since it's suborbital, it's going to start falling towards the Earth. So now <laughs> you're starting to fall in this spaceship, just basically in free fall. Uh, and as the air gets thicker, the huge, this ship's got pretty big wings compared to the size of the overall spacecraft. It starts to decelerate this ship uh, as the air cons comes in contact with it. And right at about 50 or 60,000 feet, it turns back into a normal airplane and kind of just like a glider, the pilot can take it back down to the runway. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of commercial space flight, this is a really cool start. If you wanted to get, yeah. you know, the experience of being out of the planet, this is, you know, certainly one of the ways to do so if you have a lot of money. Another point about the flight, Judd, you talked earlier about how when we make, you know, just small uh, bursts of energy, if we throw an object in the air, you're going to feel that equal and opposite reaction. Sure. This spaceship, when it's up at the top of its arc, has something called the reaction control system. And so it's pressurized, really, really highly pressurized canisters of air that it can, you know, shoot that air out mm -hmm. for a couple seconds and then cut itself off. And that is enough to just reorient the plane. Yeah, it's right? it's very similar. They have a lot of those on um, satellites and stuff. That's how satellites move. Yeah. There's little thrusters like that. Yeah. And another important detail is when it gets to the top of this arc, you know, this spaceship doesn't want to just like free fall, right, and stall out essentially. So when you're at the top of this arc, the wings actually kind of bend uh, back into sort of like a T-shape, you know, or like a K, uh, how that's kind of sticking out. And that helps to stabilize the plane and keep it, you know, almost perpendicular to the, uh, you know, the ground. I mean, it's far away from the ground, so it's kind of a hard perspective. But yeah. And once it gets towards back towards 50 or 60,000 feet, that's when those wings bring themselves back in and help the plane turn right back into just a normal aircraft. So It's interesting. Yeah. Um, but the experience is freaking wild. Let me get into this. You pull, going in, when you're falling, six Gs. So wow. it is really, really hard to stay conscious if you're not fit enough or haven't trained for this feeling. So when we say like the start of, you know, Spaceship One was a very monumental aircraft for its time in 2004. Yeah. If we think about Charles Lindbergh's uh, solo flight from New York to Paris, that ushering in the era of the airline industry, this flight is what ushered in uh, space tourism. But it's still, you know, pulling six Gs, that is something that is not feasible to have for like, Space travel for just normal civilians, you no, know? No, um, But that is, that would definitely be hard to deal with, is that that pressure on you six six times gravity, normal gravity. That'd be, I mean, you'd be hugging your seat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be really uncomfortable. But the white, let's talk about the White Knight aircraft that pulls it up. Um, it helps mitigate, mitigate having this, you know, plane carried up, mitigate the cost of launch. Mm. Because as we've talked about before, that's incredibly important is, how much you're going to spend on uh, per launch. And also, there's a lot of dangers uh, with launching from the ground, too, just because of how much fuel you have to pack in there and whatnot. So an interesting thing about Spaceship One, the spaceship piece of it, is that not all traditional rockets have wings, but this one does have wings because it's in that suborbital flight and it needs to turn into a plane you know, on its descent. So that's pretty important. And they also have to be adaptable uh, to rotate to the different positionings as it's going up and as it's going down to make sure it doesn't you know, kind of start, quote-unquote, stalling. Yeah, so, like, 
This is a, there's some military planes that have it too. Like they have extendable wings or they have wings that tuck in and then they'll come back out to a normal shape. But like, so first we have, like we have cars. Some people have made like a car that can turn into a boat. And, but now we have a plane that can turn into a spaceship is what you're telling me. Yeah, exactly. What the heck? Yeah. (laughs) A plane that can turn into a spaceship. It's like a spork, but for space flight. But for travel (laughs) in the air in general. Yeah. I mean, when we think about sci-fi movies, uh, take the... In Guardians of the Galaxy, the ship, for example, they it, it flies in atmospheres and outside of atmospheres, yeah. right? So, like, that would be the ultimate goal is that these are one and the same. Just like we were talking about with spacesuits last episode, being able to have them for spacewalks on the ISS versus lunar surfaces right. versus being inside the cabin. If we can have those just all be the same, that's uh, that's the ultimate goal. So, okay. more about Spaceship One. It has a hybrid motor, meaning it has liquid and solid fuel. So we talked about that mm-hmm. earlier. So it has a combination of the two, which isn't uncommon, but it's just uh, interesting to note. The fuel actually is tire rubber. Um, so its scientific name is oh. hydroxy-terminated polybutadiene. Um, Good for the environment. Yeah, well, not really. Yeah, definitely not really. <laughs> but um, burning something like tire rubber is just an interesting choice to think about the yeah. fact that materials in general have multiple purposes uh, in, in this case. And it's like, space. I mean, that's why I think the nuclear the nuclear engines would be so cool on these rockets because those are going to be very um, environmentally friendly too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So basically, bottom line is Spaceship One is pretty freaking cool. It's not like where we want things to be right now, but that was in 2004 and it's pretty impressive. And they've actually gone yeah. on to make, believe it or not, Spaceship Two. two. Yeah. Yeah. Sir Richard Branson. Which you, Judd, I remember you called him the Jeff Bezos of uh, the United Kingdom. <laughs> yeah, Britain, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, Britain. Um, he is quite the guy. Billionaire, obviously, if you're into uh, space travel, you've got to be. But he's in charge of the Virgin Group. Uh, so, like, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Atlantic, uh, like, all those small subsidiary companies of uh, Virgin. But he created Virgin Galactic mm-hmm. um, to incorporate Spaceship Two. So... Uh, they're doing a lot of good work there. There's also actually, if we want to talk about private stuff, SpaceX is technically a private company yeah. that works with NASA. Uh, you know, on many occasions, and they win a lot of what do you call it, like contracts or whatever yeah. to be able to work with NASA. Or NASA says, "Okay, we need this," and they submit a request for a proposal, and a bunch of people propose their ideas, and then they give it to the best proposal. Yeah. Um, but SpaceX, in terms of you know, private space travel, there was a really monumental monumental instance in which they sent uh, four p- citizens, uh, or f- like it was the first citizen-only space flight. It was called the Resilience Inspiration 4, uh, sent up in a Crew Dragon module, which we've talked about before, but citizen-only space flight, uh, meaning they had no commercial astronaut training, one, and mm. two, there was no direct government oversight for this project whatsoever. Mm. And they still all went to space for three days that's crazy. Yeah, no. This guy named Jared Isaacman, who, spoiler alert, again, another billionaire, but um, he made this company when he was like 16, uh, this payment processing company. Um, and so he, had a, he has a really big interest in spacecraft uh, and space flight. So he obviously wanted to join in this program, but he also has 6,000 hours clocked flying various aircraft. So clearly yeah. he has uh, some interest or experience in it. He's a pro. Yeah, but so he went up with this uh, girl named Haley Arsenault, who is the youngest American uh, to go to space uh, and also the first person with a prosthetic to go to space because she has something in her, her leg or something, like a bone mm. replacement. Um, but she edged out um, 
what's the name of the uh, youngest person to go to space who was also a female before I forget who it was Sally Ride hmm. yeah uh, she just edged out Sally Ride uh, but then two other seats were this guy named Chris Zembrowski and Cyan Proctor um, just two other scientists who won competitions through uh, Jared Isaacman's company to see like who else wanted to come on board right so he's looking yeah. for really smart people Proctor actually is an interesting character because she was a finalist for the 2009 ASA or ASA NASA. NASA astronaut selection finalist. Um, and she participated in four analog space missions during this. Uh, and if you don't know what an analog space mission, it's like NASA calls it a field test in locations that have physical similarities to the extreme space environments. Hmm. So like mock space situations. You know, oh, okay. she wasn't able to become an astronaut, unfortunately, but she did get this opportunity, which is, you know, really cool. Um, the problem with this, Judd, is like, you and I couldn't have been any one of these people like right now. Like we couldn't have just been their substitute and gotten on board on the last day because they still had six months of training. Yeah. And they had to draw this training upon what was called like the NASA approved curriculum because these people obviously still need, it's only them on board this ship. Yeah. And I still don't think I could learn all that in six months. Be hard. Like be able to pilot a ship and be, have that much responsibility over, you know, people's lives. That's incredible. Um, but they used the Falcon 9 rocket, which is one of SpaceX's um, pieces of technology. And they actually took off the docking capsule on the front of this rocket because, you know, they're not docking on the ISS. I hope not. That seems like that's way too much responsibility for me. I'm flying a giant rocket into the International <laughs> Space Station. That is not a good idea. But um, they took off the docking, uh, the docking capsule on the front, which meant that they had a huge domed like panoramic roof and set on top, which gave them like oh, cool. incredible views. Yeah. And if you don't think, uh, if you didn't think it could get, get any better, these views, the toilet was right under this capsule. So when you're t going to the bathroom, when you're relieving yourself, you've got the best views of the earth <laughs> that you get anywhere, which is better than reading a magazine or something. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> kidding. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, like this was a really cool experience and SpaceX has just truly reinvigorated public interest in space, especially since the space shuttle program that you talked about earlier, Judd, ended in 2011. And the next crewed mission to Earth orbit, uh, you know, besides ISS stuff, was actually SpaceX's Demo-2 mission in May 2020. So there was a period of nine years uh, where they were, were when people weren't doing crewed missions into Earth orbit. Still yeah. pretty impressive that we were able to get people with no commercial astronaut training, you know, Six months is a long time, but, you know, still another step in the right direction to getting me to space. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Let's take one more break, and then we'll wrap things up with Blue Origin. Okay. Okay. Do you remember in 2020 when Jeff Bezos <laughs> came out of a spaceship that just went to space wearing a cowboy hat and, like, no. this press release it was a big thing he, he's like okay let me just let me just start here blue origin is jeff bezos's or amazon's space company yeah okay because if you're a billionaire and you got a billion dollar or not a billion dollars billion a million billion trillion oh. gazillion oh. dollars okay there you go if you got all that money from you know having employees stand on their feet for 10 hours straight working mega shifts at your amazon warehouse factories uh clearly you got to take a step into you know space exploration yeah. So I got this from their website, which I thought was interesting. I just want to get your reaction to um, this statement about their mission. So 
It says Blue Origin was founded with a vision of millions of people living and working in space for the benefit of Earth. It's interesting. Blue Origin envisions a time when people can tap into the limitless resources of space and enable the movement in, of damaging inter- industries into space to preserve Earth, humanity's blue origin. Huh. I mean, it's not a horrible idea. Yeah. No, absolutely not. I mean, in practice, that sounds amazing. But just let me know when you get <laughs> millions of people living and working in space. But they say enables the movement of damaging industries into space. That would be kind of interesting. The, I wonder, I mean, obviously like production stuff, but... If, if by the time we have millions of people in space, <laughs> we haven't figured out how to get rid of CO2 emissions, yeah. something is absolutely like <laughs> screwed. Something yeah. We messed up somewhere We're if done. that is happening at the same time. But anyway, Blue Origin works on like reusable rockets. So it's the whole idea of space enterprise. It's like, we don't want to have to make a spaceship every time we are going out. So we send one up with reusable rocket engines and then they land themselves, you know, yep. with legs that come out the side and orient itself on the ground. Yeah. It's pretty cool, but they do, they have uh, plans outside of spaceships too. They actually want to do a space station called the Orbital Reef, which is in low Earth orbit and it's a mixed use space station. And what does mixed oh. use mean? Let me tell you, it's working, living, like commercial trade, research. They basically just want life to be in space on this space station. It seems a little weird though, because on their website, they're basically just advertising that like, yes, in the future, if you have millions of dollars, you can pay us and just like spend a weekend in space, right? Is it going to be like that, the interstellar, like, Oh, the circular Earth in space, Earth circular space. spinny weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, definitely not going to be that big, but like they, you know, they, are certainly it looks a lot like the ISS to be totally honest, yeah, but no, I think it, it's similar. it's cleaned up because if you've seen pictures of the inside the ISS, there's a lot of hardware everywhere. Yeah, it's just purely science and yeah. This like this looks a lot more like a like a living working kind of space. So you can have the hotel. They have hotels under the water. They have hotels top of mountains, top of mountains, all that stuff. But now you can have a hotel in space. Yeah, and I mean I I don't know if you remember this, but they were even talking about at some point like hotel in a plane that like never That's lands cool. or something. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. The elusive they. Mm. Um, No, but Blue Origin is a a bunch of companies working together. It's like Sierra Space, Boeing, Redwire, uh, or Rewire, Genesis Engineering Solutions, and Arizona State University. Space University. Um, No, the interesting thing I thought about the orbital rethink is they said they were going to deliver it within the end of the decade. That's a really... That's a quick timeline. That's a quick timeline. You're going to build another ISS, but even like more premier than the ISS, you know, cleaner yeah. and like self-sustaining and people are going to live and work up there. I don't know. Um, it's kind of weird, but I mean, Blue Origin has done other stuff specifically for NASA, just like SpaceX has. They actually won the contract for studying Mars's magnetosphere. So they're mm-hmm. going to send technology out there to um, study that, which is cool. I don't know, man. Bil- billionaires. Let me, let me tell you. People, so originally people were really mad at Bezos because when he first went to space in one of the Blue Origin rockets, people were really mad because nobody really knew who was benefiting from these endeavors. Everybody's like, okay, well, I'm not a billionaire, so what does it do me if you're, you know, saying, oh, thank you, Amazon customers, thank you, Amazon employees, because you paid for this, you know? Nobody feels like they're getting anything out of you going to space, right? Yeah. So his approach to it is a little bit weird, but bottom line is, I mean, uh, to 
to get both sides here. Like, bottom line is we need somebody with lots of money to be able to make space travel happen, right? We yeah. need some sort of funding and some I sort mean, of push. I mean, it's like, it. sure, I would, I guess maybe it'd be upsetting too yeah. to like, but at the same time, it's his money. Like, yeah. And like it, to him, it's probably just like he bought a new boat or something. Like he can't. There's no. You can't spend a billion dollars in your lifetime. So you got to yeah. do something cool. You got to do something with it. Go exactly. To space. And I mean, the fact that this happened in 2020 meant it was coming out around like the presidential election, and mm. so a lot of people were using this as a platform to like attack billionaires who they feel like don't pay their taxes fairly or something like that. You know. Gotcha. So they were saying, you know, oh, like we're against space flight or something like that because this isn't beneficial for anybody but the rich people, you know? True. In my opinion, like, let's not come, let's not attack space flight here, you yeah. know? Like, let's not make this political. This is some of the coolest research that will be done in our lifetime, right. you know? So let's, we need, we need somebody to be able to, uh, you know, pay for all of this. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem in space flight and exploration is funding, yeah. so... But here's where the, here's where the, uh, like, I have no other word for it besides T, but, like, here's the, here's the actual story. So the real backlash came around when Amazon published some really sketchy infographics about Blue Origin as a company, okay? Hmm. Let me tell you about them. So they, first of all, they uh, poked fun at Virgin Galactic. We talked about Virgin Galactic being, like, the Spaceship One, Spaceship Two company, okay? He poked fun at Virgin Galactic because he said, Oh, well, look at Blue Origin. We got up past the Carmen line, which is the Carmen line is the 62 uh, miles outside of like the sea level, mm. right? That's what we consider space is the Carmen line. It's internationally recognized as like what, what makes space, right? Okay. It's actually 100 kilometers. Uh, but so he was saying, oh, Virgin Galactic only didn't reach this. Like they were only low orbit. It's like, why are you like being competitive, <laughs> like this competitive about it. You know what I'm saying? It was, you know, we need competition, right. but we don't need like middle school competition. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, let's leave them alone. But so, and they also said in one of the other infographics, they said SpaceX's Starship uh, deep space vehicle is quote unquote, immensely complex and high risk without any information whatsoever. They just called another company's yeah. spaceship high risk. Because they're trying to reorient people to say like, oh, this is dangerous and we're the right route or something like that, right? Sure. Which, I don't know, it seems kind of childish. But it gets worse because Bezos got more mad when Blue Origin didn't win the HLS uh, contract from NASA, which is human landing system, something needed, they needed for the Artemis mission, right? This is the whole idea of the lunar module that's going to go from uh, the docking station to the lunar surface. Who's going to build this, right? They didn't win the contract. Um, and so he writes a letter to the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, saying that, uh, here, I got a quote here. It says, Blue Origin most recently deciding to file a lawsuit in the court of federal claims against NASA over the selection, uh, and they're talking about the selection of the contract, citing what the company describes as NASA's unlawful and improper evaluation. Huh. So he's saying, I know it was your selection, but you selected wrong. It should have been us. It's oh, yeah. And I bet there's some other rules about it since it's like a federal thing. But it's yeah. also like, I mean, it depends if someone was cheaper or more efficient. You're going to go yeah. with that one. So I don't know. Yeah. And you've got hundreds of billions of dollars. 
if you're that mad about not getting the federal funding for it, just go build it yourself. <laughs> if you cared that much, you'd just build it yourself, you know? It worries me a little bit because I feel like, do you, here's a question for you. Do you think that Bezos could be, you know, jeopardizing the future of spaceflight? If he, you know, if he's making public opinion oriented against spaceflight, do you think that could be possibly, you know, damaging to, you know, the future? I mean, I think people are going to, especially since, like you said, this is kind of around election time and stuff like that. But I think people are going to be quick to like point fingers and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think Bezos really just wanted to uh, establish his company and he didn't, they didn't win many contracts like yeah. you were saying. So it was like SpaceX and they just lost to SpaceX, which probably isn't something that maybe Bezos is used to since Amazon just came into the like shipping and all that. The, yeah. the shipping industry and stuff and just took over. Yeah, literally. Um, but I don't know. And I also think Musk might have kind of better intentions. You can really tell that this is what he's into. And he likes he it. He loves yeah. it so much. So he wants to be part of the cool stuff that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, bottom line is I appreciate all the billionaires out there that are building us spaceships. And hopefully you can make them a little cheaper for me. In the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that basically wraps up what we've got to talk about today, right? Yep. Yeah, okay, very cool. I, I know Judd's getting antsy right now because uh, he wants to go run a mile or something or whatever aerospace engineers do in their phone, but... Whatever, dude. Listen, thank you very much for tuning in today. In the meantime, make sure to leave a rating for our show because uh, we'd love to hear back from you guys. Otherwise, tune in in two weeks on Monday to hear about blank. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the episode. We're getting ready for something really big. Follow us on our socials. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this. All right. See you next time.